worship God in spirit and in truth. So it's going to be awkward for us all. Uh, but as the pastor requested, be patient with us. Things are going to be different when you get here, but we're going to have church. That's the most important thing. We're going to have church. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Brother Brown. If you're watching, we're praying for you, my friend. And we're glad that you're doing well. They didn't have to do the procedure that they thought they had to do. They think they can uh, do this with the medication. So we're thankful for that. Look forward to seeing you, my friend. And I don't know if you can see it or not, but this I just want you to see this tie I'm wearing. This tie came directly from Africa. Sister Lexi carried this all the way from Africa. And uh, I want to thank you, sister, for this tie. It is really pretty. And, and I was going to wear it today one way or the other, but my wife was going to make me if I didn't wear it. So here we are, tie and all. What a great God we serve. And uh, I know that uh, we're ready for God to move in our midst again. We're ready for God to do something in our lives. And trust me, I'm here now in church and, and part of the worship and so on. It's just not the same sitting at home. It's just not the same. And you may be in your pajamas. Personally, I can't sit in my pajamas and watch church. I just can't do that. But uh, I don't put on a tie and suit either. But it's just not the same as being here. But thank God that we have that capability to do it. It is a blessing to us. So I want to direct your attention to the word of the Lord uh, this morning. And we're going to be going to the book of Psalms, the 46th chapter, and reading seven verses. And I believe that God wants to speak to us uh, here today. I, when I knew I was going to be preaching today, I did not need to go looking for a sermon or a message. What I needed God to do was to call out the things he's been talking to me about for weeks now. And what do you want me to preach today? And the days we're living in, you don't need to go looking for a message the messages all around us. Psalms 46, beginning in verse number 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will we not fear. I want somebody out there that's watching me right now to say the words, I am not afraid. You need to say it. You need to say it out loud. You need to say it. I am not afraid. Though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah, there is a river, the streams whereof shall make me glad, the city of God the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. But hear it now. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is. 
And let me say, he will remain to be our refuge. Lord, bless all of you, those on the platform that are here. You can be seated. Thank you so much for your worship, for getting here early. There are people here very early this morning praying. <clears throat> and uh, God uh, spoke to us in prayer through prophecy. God is on our side. God is with us. The words we read uh, from the book of Psalms are very fitting, and uh, especially for a time like this. And I think that you need to take them to heart, and if you will turn to the book of Psalms during the days that you're being socially isolated, the Word of God will bring you a great deal of encouragement. As Paul said, we might be cast down, but we are not, don't mistake this now, we are not in despair. Praise God. And if I'm preaching to someone or speaking to someone that's feeling despair, that's not coming from God. Uh, so we need to pray and get into the Word of God, and that despair will uh, be removed from your heart. So the Scripture said, therefore, will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried excuse me, into the midst of the sea. But what gives us that kind of hope? What gives us that kind of consolation? The psalmist went on to say, it's the Lord our God who is our refuge. It's the Lord our God who is our strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, I feel like I need to tell you uh, uh, with no uncertain terms that uh, I know that some of your family members have uh, perished from this uh, pandemic. Some of you have had friends, maybe neighbors that have perished or been very ill. It is a very serious thing, but I stand here before you. There is not one cell in my body that is afraid of COVID-19. Not one cell. You say, well, you're just really weird. No, I'm just saved. That's all there is to it. God has given us a promise. He said, you, you scope the world. When the worst possible thing can happen to you, I've got a new body for you waiting in heaven. I've got a promise for you. And so, I pose the question at this point, when we're all a little bit uh, off balance, if you please, the question I pose to you, in which I have used to title this message, is simply, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? I think that it's clear by now, I know many of us, uh, and many of you have been looking at various conversations online with Lee Stone King and Art Wilson, uh, the, uh, uh, they're at the United Nations and so on, and you've been looking at some things online from apostolic ministers, I hope, and not from any other uh, kind of minister, and so it's clear to us by now that we're in the midst of an unprecedented event. Nobody on the planet that is alive has ever experienced anything quite like this, and that it is an event that carries broad prophetic implications. So I believe that there are three things that are very important for the apostolic community in this particular hour. Number one, I believe that we need to hear or to know what the Spirit of God is speaking to the church in general. What is the Spirit of God speaking to the apostolic community around the world? Number two, what is the Spirit of God speaking to our church, 
to this congregation, to the members of Apostolic Praise Tabernacle. And thirdly, it's vital that we know what God is speaking to you. What is God saying to you right now? What are you hearing from the voice of God? What is the Word of God speaking into your heart and your soul in this present hour? So I think it would be absurd to think that in a time like this that God would be silent. I think it's ridiculous to think that as the church and the world goes through a time as monumental and global as this, that the Spirit of God would be hiding somewhere and would be silent. No, let me tell you right now, God is speaking, and He's speaking very loudly and very clearly. And so the urgency of the hour demands that we hear from God. No doubt you are tuning in various sources, secular sources for news and and that which is going on and the latest about the pandemic and and uh, inoculations and all of these things, and that's fine. We need to be educated about the world that is going on around us, and that's okay. But you're hearing a lot of different things. You're hearing a lot of different voices from a lot of different vantage points. But now it's important that you know what God is saying. I don't care what CNN is saying. I don't care what Fox is saying. I want to know what the Spirit of God is speaking to His church. So what we hear from God will determine where we go from here. Jehoram, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and the king of Edom formed a coalition in order to repel an all-out assault by the Moabite army, which was superior in size, in strength, and in weapons. This alliance was thought to provide Jehoram, which was the son of Ahab. Doesn't conjure up uh, pleasant thoughts, does it? He was the king of Israel, the son of Ahab, and he thought that this alliance would give him confidence and give him the leverage that he needed in order to defeat the Moabites. But seven days into the campaign, something went wrong. It's written in 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 9, So the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, and they fetched a compass of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. You see, they took herds of cattle and sheep and so on so that the army would have food along the way and during the campaign or during the war. And so the Moabites would have been difficult enough to defeat under ideal circumstances, but now they have no water. They have completely run out of water. Their cattle are dying. Their food supply is being depleted, and they realize that they are in dire straits. They're in trouble. Verse 10 says, and the king of Israel, that's Jehoram, the son of Ahab, here's what he says in the midst of this dilemma. Alas! that the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Thank you very much for that word of doubt. Thank you very much for not having any faith, Jehoram. Thank you for when we get in a little bit of trouble, you collapse and your faith collapses. But that's what happens in the absence of faith. 
That's what happens when things go wrong and you don't have any faith. You automatically begin to think the worst. And fear sets in and fear will absolutely destroy faith if there was any faith to begin with. What is fear? Fear is the antipathy of faith. And it has the opposite results of faith. Like Jehoram, people in whom there is no faith, they, they collapse and they automatically assume that, that things are going to get worse from here. But when the situation became grim, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, a king that did right in the sight of God, he knew exactly what they needed. He didn't ask for reinforcements. He didn't ask for a fresh water supply. He didn't ask for fresh weapons. He didn't ask for another army. He said, what we need right now is to hear a word from God. That's what we need. I'm sure Jehoram is rolling his eyes and stumping his shoulders. What are you nuts? We don't need a message. We don't need a preacher. We don't need a prophet. But Jehoshaphat knew that's exactly what we need. And so in verse 11, Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. You see, a bad situation had turned exponentially worse. I'm going to tell you right now, I cannot promise you that a month or two months from now, this is all going to be over and everything's going to be back the way it was with the economy on, on, uh, just on fire. I can't promise you that things are not going to get worse. But I can promise you whatever happens, God will be with us. So they were in full crisis mode. I mean, it was serious situation. So this was not a time for quaint messages. This was not a time for cute stories and cliches. They needed to hear a clear and definitive word from God, and they said, I know just where to get it. Somebody go get Elisha. Somebody go get Elisha because we know Elisha's going to preach the word to us. He's going to tell us exactly like it is. Extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. That's not a new concept to any of us, I'm sure. Last week, our pastor preached about digging new wells, and I can tell you that under normal circumstances, the waters of the Holy Ghost around apostolic praise tabernacle do not run that deep. We have some prayer warriors and some intercessors in the church. I wish you would join them. But because they're digging wells, when you walk in, the water's already flowing. You don't have to dig very deep around apostolic praise to tap into some fresh Holy Ghost waters. But we're in the midst now of a global pandemic, social isolation, and there is the potential, I'm just saying the potential, for a global economic meltdown. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We need to hear a word from God. Seemingly overnight, overnight, without warning, we lurched forward toward a one-world government. Overnight, we went to sleep one night, and the next morning we get up, 
and everybody's talking again. Hadn't been discussing it much, but now everybody's talking about the mark of the beast. The reality of it. Not somewhere in the distant future, but that which is formulating in our world right now before our very eyes. We went to sleep and got up the next morning and all of a sudden there's fresh talk and interest in the potential rise of the Antichrist and the outpouring of God's wrath upon the world. And so the church, what's happened in the church, that's going on in the world. But what happens in the church? Well, the church has taken a precipitous and unexpected leap forward toward the coming of the Lord. All of a sudden, it's feeling real again, isn't it? All of a sudden, it feels very real. And so as Bishop of Apostolic Praise Tabernacle, I want to take a few minutes, and I want to speak specifically to the ministry that operates and ministers within our church. And I only pray that you look past my flaws and, and, and my my foolishness and my humanity, and that you will receive this as from the Lord. First of all, I want to say to you that this is no time for generic, one-size, feel-good messages. It's no time to go on the Internet and find something that you will say, that'll preach good or that'll preach easy. We have to differentiate between what we think the people want, even what we think the people need, and we need to hear from God himself. We need to hear a prophetic word from the Lord. And so he spoke to me recently about some things that I'm going to share with you. But I want you to understand the word of God is personal. When God spoke to the seven churches, he addressed each letter to the angel of that particular church. He wanted them to know, come on, this is for you. It's not for the church in the next town over. It's not for the church three blocks away. This is designed specifically for you. I want to know what is God speaking to apostolic praise tabernacle. Each time that we step in the pulpit, men, we bear a grave responsibility more than ever before because it is through the powerful and the anointed ministry of the Word of God that He is going to prepare His church for whatever is coming next week, next month, or next year. It's through the Word of God that He is going to steer us down the runway toward the return of Jesus Christ Himself. Without that direction, without that Word, without that prophetic inspiration, we're not going to be able to go down that particular path that God has for us. I don't care what they're doing uh, in Immokalee. I don't care what they're doing in Naples. I don't care what they're doing uh, in, in Port Charlotte. I want to know the will of God and the word of God for us. So we're going to have to do some digging, preachers. 
We're going to have to do some soul searching. We're going to have to explore some dimensions in the Spirit of God that are not that easy to access. God has revealed recently to me some things about the spiritual realm. And I want to share it with you for just a moment. I shouldn't because I, I have too much material for our time. But God has shown me that it's, it's, we go into a room, we, let's call it a prayer room, and we pray. And we get done praying and we feel the spirit lift off of us. And our tendency is to, to go out of that room and depart. Okay, we did that. We've been there. We prayed. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. But God has shown me that when you go out of that, there's a long corridor. And if you will continue down that corridor, you'll find another room. You'll find another place that's been hewn out for you. If you'll just keep on pressing down that corridor a little bit further with praise and with meditation and with worship and with seeking, I will open another door to which you can go in. God, how many doors are there? There's no limit to the number of doors down that corridor. God is calling us down that long, narrow hallway to some fresh anointing and some fresh revelation in his word and in his spirit. I have always felt like waking up at 5 o'clock every morning was a curse. I've even said that with my own lips. It's a curse. No matter what time I go to bed, 5 o'clock. <laughs> well, I asked God to change it to 4. And now I can't sleep past 4 o'clock. 3.30, I'm starting to wake up. Why? Because I have to find what's down that hallway. I've got to see what's in another room down that hallway. I've been in a few rooms, and oh my gosh, I, I can't even describe to you what it's like, but I know that there's a lot of different and more rooms if I will just keep advancing down that narrow hallway. Amen. I prayed and said, God, somehow, God, miraculously deliver me from time. When I go in prayer, I don't want to know what time it is. I know you're on a schedule. A lot of you people work, and I understand that. But I'm saying, God, just take that concept of time out of me because my flesh is wired. After an hour goes by, my flesh says, okay, it starts tugging on me. Okay, you got your hour in. Okay, you put your time in. Okay, come on, an hour's over now. It's time to get on with business. And so if I don't know what time it is, my flesh can't speak to me. So when we come to the pulpit, we need to come with an urgency because if there's no urgency in us, there will be no urgency in them. If the word that we preach does not burn in us, it will not burn in them. If we don't have a burden for the lost, neither will they that hear it. It is imperative that we hear from God, and I'm telling you again, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. You hear a lot of different stuff, and you gotta, you got to sort through it all. You've got to call out everything else that's not of God. Why do you think Elijah wrapped his head in a mantle? My gosh, I'm hearing everything, but I'm not hearing God. And that's exactly the world that we're living in right now. In reality, the Holy Ghost has been speaking to us for a long time. I know the Lord has been speaking to me as well. 
for a long, long time. And uh, it's easy to say, I'll, I'll do that tomorrow. I'll, okay, God, I hear you, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that later. I heard from reliable sources, apostolic sources, uh, in recent weeks that through this pandemic that God is waking his church up. And I completely concur with that. I agree that God is, in fact, I prayed it in the Holy Ghost this morning, wake up Zion, come on, wake up the mighty men. God is waking the, 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 the ten virgins up that's in the parable, waking us up out of our spiritual sleep and our spiritual coma. But the Holy Ghost spoke to me, said he's doing something else besides waking up the people of God. He is putting the church on high alert, high alert. Our senses now have been stirred and stimulated. Our Holy Ghost within us is telling us this is not this is not just normal stuff here. This is, this is something bigger than that. This is something more important than that. And so I, I think that we need to fill in all the voids and, and the gaps that exist in the hedge of prayer that is around the church. I think we need to look on the wall and see where there are vacancies on the wall. And we need to make sure there's a man or a woman or a young person at every place now where there are vacancies on the wall. And they will begin praying and, and filling in the void and standing in the gap and, and making up the places, those vacancies on the wall unfortunately and I have to bring it to you because that's what God brought to me unfortunately there are many within the church that are just looking for things to go back to the way they were God just let us slip back into the way things were before there was a global shutdown of everything but I'm praying God don't let us go back to the way things were. We have seen over and over again in the word of God how important timing is to God's will and to God's purpose. We're not going to cite many examples of that, but I will say it's because understanding that, it's important that we as God's people do not miss the time of our visitation. Amen. Whether you go on high alert or not is going to be totally up to you. You can keep, you can stay prayerless, you can pray your 15 minutes a day or whatever it is, and you can stay like that, and I hope you're saved. But God is calling those that are listening to the state of high alert. COVID-19, uh, I believe, is just a glimpse. I believe that it's just a preview. It's just a warning to the world of the kind of disease, pestilence, and, and desolation that is going to happen when the church is gone, when he removes or after he has removed his church from this world. Well, it's a warning to them. It is a calling to us. I don't believe God's warning us. We are not appointed to wrath. I believe there's God is speaking to us, but I don't think he is warning us. So the redeemed of God was never meant to go into a state of fear 
and paralysis. It's not meant for the redeemed of God to fall into despair. It's meant for the people of God to get up, to rise up, and to realize that this is a sign from God that the end is near. Luke 21, 28, Jesus said, when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Ladies and gentlemen, we're way past that. We are long gone past the beginning of prophetic events in the end time that started to come to pass. It happened a long time ago. And so if you're not receiving this message from the Holy Ghost, you're either not praying or you're not listening. Over a hundred years ago, over the last 100 years, and I've only been in church for 46 years, so I wasn't privy to a lot of things that happened before then, to the initial uh, latter-day outpouring of the Holy Ghost uh, on New Year's Eve or the, uh, the Azusa Street Revival. But I know when it, how it was when we came into the kingdom of God, and I know this has been going on for at least 100 years. The people of God has watched the world move prophetically at a snail's pace. It's been a snail's pace. You know that there are people that's been dead for 50 years that believe the Lord was going to come in their lifetime? Because prophetic events are portrayed on the landscape or the stage of humanity at a snail's pace. They go very, very slowly. Why do you think Israel didn't listen to the prophets? They said, if you don't repent and, and, and burn your idols and get rid of this idolatry, God's going to come and destroy you. But 30 years later, they were still there. It took time. The wheels of God moved very slowly. And so because of that, Christians, the saints of God that were poised and positioned and praying and ready for the coming of the Lord decades ago are no longer poised and no longer in position because it didn't happen as predicted. It didn't happen as they expected it to happen, and because of that, the church has fallen into a state of spiritual indifference. When we hear sermons about the end time in the book of Revelation, the coming of the Lord, it's as if we can see the lips of the preacher moving, but we can't really hear anything coming out of his mouth. I'm going to refer to some scriptures in a few minutes that you've probably heard preached on a hundred times, and you may think, oh no, I've heard that a hundred times. Well, you're going to hear it one more time today, but... Repetition can either cause indifference or it can cause spiritual revelation. So the pandemic that we're experiencing right now, it's not just a, a blip on one of Irving Baxter's charts. It's not just page 37 out of chapter 2 of one of his books or manuals on the end time. It's not something that we saw in the 6 o'clock news that's happening in a small village over in Africa somewhere. Huh? This is everywhere. It is global. It's affecting us where we live. And we have just witnessed 
how quickly, how fast things can change right before our eyes. The Bible says the Lord's going to come and it will take place in one sixtieth of a second. It'll be done. Done. It's done. It's gone. The people are gone. So I have to take you where the Spirit of God has taken me over the last two or three weeks. It's in Second Chronicles 7, 14 and 15. It says, if my people, which are called by my name, can anybody other than the apostolics, one God, Jesus' name, people say this is a reference to New Testament believers as well as it was to Israel. It's talking to us, church. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, he said, mine eyes shall be opened. And my ears attend under what? Under the prayer that is made in this place. Now we know that these words were spoken by the Lord to Solomon at the beginning of his reign. And they indicated to Solomon that in the event that the nation of Israel ever fell into idolatry or turned away from God, He said, in the event they've fallen away, but if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and so on, God says that he would restore them. And so I questioned God about why we, in this particular moment of time, and as the New Testament church, why we would be directed to these passages of Scripture, and the reason is because they don't seem to fit us. They fit at the beginning, but by the time you get toward the end of verse number 14, they kind of don't fit us anymore. And why? Because the church is firmly fixed where Jesus built it. It firmly stands on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So what are you fretting about? If you're in the church, a part of the church, what are you worried about? It's written in the word of God that the day will come when the Lord returns for his church that he will, not might, he will present unto himself a glorious church having or not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And in that quickening moment, it is said that that church will be holy and without blemish. God has a people right now, and he will have a people when he comes back to this world. And so I struggled with that when it talks about turning from wickedness. God, how does that apply to us? Now, I'm not naive. I know that everybody that says they're living it is not living it. I know that in the secret of of men and women's lives, there may be sin and hypocrisy and envy and jealousy and adultery. I'm not naive to the fact that everybody is not who they say they are. But I believe that the posture of the church going from this pandemic is given to us in 2 Chronicles 7.14 as we press ourselves forward toward the imminent return of Jesus Christ. So as the end time heats up, 
God is calling his church to prayer. Now, you can't go to a Bible conference anywhere without hearing messages about prayer. We used to go to the cause of the times, and we were inundated with messages on prayer. Why? Because that's what we needed to hear. Every time Vesta Mangan came to the pulpit, you knew what she was going to preach on. She's going to preach on prayer. But everyone, again, I'm not naive, everyone's not going to answer the call. There's a lot of folks going to keep on with the routine. Everybody is not going to answer the call to pray, but I'm to remind you that two of the greatest moves of God and demonstration of God's power and spirit in the book of Acts happened in prayer meetings. Happened when the people of God prayed. Those two prayer meetings happened at a time when the church was in the midst of a very serious crisis. They were in crisis mode. I'm not suggesting for a moment that the early church did not pray on a regular basis, but something seemed to happen. Something seemed to change whenever their backs were up against the wall. Have you noticed that we never feel the urge to pray when the windows of heaven are opened in our direction and God is pouring blessing down on us? When everybody's healthy and everybody in the family's prospering and everybody's doing well and all the grandkids are doing well and everything's good, I don't ever hear anybody say, hey, we're being blessed so much, let's find a place and pray. Only during times of crisis, come on, granny's on a ventilator. Come on, mom's got cancer. Come on, the grandkids are on drugs. All hell is breaking loose. Come on, we need to find a place to pray. And that's with all of us. I mean, my wife, she keeps filling out all the forms to win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. I'm sure if they ever knocked on our door, I didn't say, honey, we got to pray right now. We'll be right with you. we got to go have a prayer meeting right now. But if the police come knocking on our door with news about something that happened to our son, you better believe prayer is somewhere going to happen in our future. It's not my intent to diminish the importance or the beauty of praise and worship. God knows he loves it. He seeketh such to worship him in spirit and truth. I appreciate the ability, the talent, the anointing on our worship team and musicians, so don't take this wrong. But you will be hard-pressed to find a visitation of God in the Bible that took place during praise and worship. When Elijah went to Mount Carmel, he didn't call for the choir to sing. He didn't call for the worship team to meet him on Mount Carmel. Didn't happen. There was no orchestra playing in the background, setting the mood while he repaired the altar and offered that bullock upon that altar and poured water over that altar. So I'm going to tell you the fire of God, if it falls in our worship, if it falls in our praise, it's only because it fell in a prayer room somewhere. 
before the service started. It only fell in worship because it fell in somebody's altar. It ignited a prayer warrior somewhere when they were seeking the face of God. So when we break out the instruments and the praise team, we can believe that God is going to visit us just the same way. The entire night before Jesus went walking on the stormy sea, Entered into the ship, calmed the storm, stepped out on the shores of Gadara and cast the legion of devils out of the demoniac. He spent that entire night in prayer. My God. Peter was chained to a wall in a prison. Scheduled for execution. It was a sure thing. It was a done deal. The saints didn't sing him out of jail. Keep singing. I'm not saying... There's no value in that. Oh, it's oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's needed. It's it's valued. It's appreciated. It's powerful. But you have to understand. There's some things you're not gonna move with singing. They prayed him out. When he got to the house where they were praying, and Rhoda answered the door, he didn't hear singing. He heard the sound of intercession. I can only take you where the Spirit of God has taken me. And that is 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So then, then, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. It's been made clear to me that even though we have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and thank God for that revelation. We have received the gift of the Holy Ghost just like they did in the book of Acts by or with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. However, if we expect God to answer our prayers, there are some things he has shown me we're going to have to get straight. Within this verse, God promises three incredible things. Now, these are just absolutely astounding. These three things that God promises in this verse. He says, I will hear from heaven. That's huge. He said, then I will forgive their sin. Then he said, I will. These are three I wills. I will heal their land. And if any land needed healing, it is America. I'm listening to an audible book right now about the Jezebel spirit in America, and it is, it is mind-boggling. The wickedness that God sees in America every single day. But in order for God to do these three things, hear, forgive, and heal, we must do the four things that he has commanded us to do. The first of which is to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. Wow, that sounds easy, doesn't it? Humble ourselves. So immediately when God revealed this to me, uh, I began to pray this format, and I knew before I pray, i got to humble myself, so I spent a few minutes humbling myself, and I'm ready to pray, and God says, no, <laughs> wait a minute, bud. Stop right there. You're not done yet. 
shock and with the reality of what God sees in me, I began to continue humbling myself. And now every day it takes me anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour before I feel released from the Holy Ghost to actually begin praying. What I discovered is that God wanted me, Pastor, to do some digging, not in his well, but in my own. To do some digging deep within me, and when I began to do that, I began to turn some things up. See, God showed me I'm not interested in your words. I'm not interested in your body language. I'm not interested in the semantics that is always used in the, in the arena of humility. He said, what I'm interested in is your spirit. That's what I want to see, not how you act toward others, not how you treat others as a facade to, to disguise your anger or frustration or hatred or envy of them. I want to see your spirit. Wow, I don't want to see it. I'd rather ignore it. But God says, "Uh uh-uh. You want revival? You want your altars full? You want your baptistry full? You want people getting the Holy Ghost? This is the way to see that happen. And so we can prostrate ourselves before God, and we do that. But if when we get up, whether it's this altar or an altar at home, if when we get up, we still have a spirit that is self-righteous and sanctimonious or a spirit of self-importance or a spirit of entitlement and privilege or a spirit of superiority, then we got up the same as when we knelt down. I want you to please note that 2 Chronicles 7.14 does not initially call his people to repentance. Interesting, isn't it? He didn't call, he didn't say repent. He calls us to humble ourselves because we're supposed to be living righteously already. And we'll get to some stuff in a minute. What is humility? I don't know what the dictionary says. Do you know why? Because I never looked it up. I don't care what Miriam says. I don't care what the Oxford English Dictionary says. The Holy Ghost already told me what humility is. He says this, true humility is coming to the sobering reality of who and what you are without God's grace and mercy. Sobering, yeah, it's sobering. But God doesn't want us to just humble ourselves before him. He wants us to humble ourselves to one another. Have you ever wondered why the mercy of God is new every morning? You ever thought about that? We say, oh, I'm glad it is, but have you ever thought, why do you need to, you know, I, I dealt with this stuff this morning. Why do you need to provide me with a fresh supply of mercy in the morning when I get up? Because by the time you go to bed and wake up, you're going to need some more mercy. Whatever you got under subjection yesterday is going to wake up with you when you get up in the morning. 
I'd like to think we could just take care of business. There's some things I wish we could have left in the waters of baptism, but they came through the water with us. Praise God. For the example of our Lord, at the Last Supper, we occasionally get down and wash one another's feet. We haven't done it for a while. Honestly, I can tell you in confession, it's never really been something I fully enjoy doing. I've never said, oh, goody, we're going to have foot washing tonight. Woo-wee. But we do it because it's a commandment of God, and I understand, I think, to, at least to some degree, uh, what is it, it is intended to represent. Unfortunately, and you all, I know you will agree with me, that a lot of times we do it, but, and we get up just like before. We washed another person's feet. There's really not any dramatic change within us or anything different within our spirit. We do it because God told us to do it. We just kind of, okay, God, we'll grimace and we'll do it. But a truly humble person does not need to literally physically bow down to another human being in order to demonstrate their humility. If a person is truly and authentically humble, They will place themselves under other people in their mind and in their spirit. They will place themselves beneath others. You know, the Bible says if you got a real serious problem in the church and you got two people about to kill one another and you, you call the church together, you know, to judge the situation, you know what the Bible says? Call the least among you to judge in the situation. Why? Because they have no political interest. They have no political vestment. They'll see things the way they need to be seen. But, oh, we got to call the wise or supposedly wise and important people and the diplomats and board members. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus said because, see, that's pride. Well, i got to judge in that situation. Nobody else can judge like I can judge. So if you want to humble yourself to others, here's how you do it. You don't do it by bowing down to them. You do it by lifting them up. By elevating them. Not only outwardly, but it's got to be in your own heart, in your own mind. It means that we lift them up by valuing them in the kingdom of God. They don't pray like I do. See, that's the problem. Well, they don't fast like I do. They don't have the anointing that I've got. Pride, pride, pride. They don't have the gifts that God has given me. They're not as important to the work of God. The devil can take out a saint and it won't affect the church, but if he takes out some of the preachers or board members or prayer warriors, my God, the church will collapse. Pride. Pride, pride. My God, my God. Of course, pride works in the opposite direction of elevating and lifting people up. It dismisses them and condemns them to silent servitude. Silent servitude. Because your voice is not important for us to listen to or be heard. So it's very sobering, I can tell you, to know that we cannot even get to the altar to pray. We can't even get to the altar to pray. 
until God is satisfied that we have truly humbled ourselves before him and before others. I want to know if it's changed my life and my prayer life. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's why I need to get up at 4 o'clock now because in order to have sufficient time to do what the Spirit of God is asking me to do, I have to allow for that. Once God is satisfied with the sincerity of our self-effacing abasement, then we will be released to pray. You want to know where the anointing of prayer is? That's where it is. You won't have to fabricate it. You won't have to dig very far, very deep. The anointing of God will be there. And so again, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. What is prayer? Well, prayer uh, is a consolidation of a number of things. People that say, I just don't know what to pray for. What are you, are you, are you saved? Don't know what to pray for. Because prayer involves a sundry of things like praise, worship, thanksgiving, petition, supplication, intercession, spiritual warfare, and intimacy with God, and you don't have anything to pray for. Ephesians 6.18 says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Don't know what to pray for. And so there's a calling that's been going out, and I believe that the sound's becoming very clear now to every apostolic believer that God wants us to shake our world through prayer. And so until eight weeks ago, until eight weeks ago or so, we were too busy. We didn't have time. Until eight weeks ago, perhaps we were too satisfied with whatever we got in our experience. Until eight weeks ago, we were too complacent. We were too apathetic. My anointing's good enough. It may not move people. It may not move mountains. It may not move anybody, but I'm happy with it. It may not save anybody. It may not put conviction on anybody, <coughs> but I'm happy with it. Until eight weeks ago, that was our estate, but now what? God has said, I know what to do. I will just stop everything. I'll stop everything. And now tell me you're too busy and too hurried and too scurried. Now with a global pandemic, tell me now you're, you're not concerned. and Talk complacency to me now. Talk apathy to me now, my God. But then we're informed of another dimension of prayer. And that, of course, is to seek my face, he says. What is prayer? It is presenting our agenda to God. Here's my agenda, God. But seeking God is listening for his agenda. He knows what our agenda is. But do we know what his agenda is? We learn what his agenda is. When we advanced down that corridor past the couple prayer rooms where we prayed and interceded and supplicated and was intimate with God, and now we're going to just spend some time uh, feeling after God and seeking after God because he knows what my agenda is. But before I leave here, I need to know what God's agenda is for me and for my family and for our church. Praise God. 
In Hebrews chapter 4, 16, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I like that. I like that. Boldly doesn't mean with arrogance or with pride or anything, and we'll advance on that thought in just a moment. But after we've laid everything out before the Lord, God, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I feel we need you to do. Now, what do you want from me? What is your expectation for us? Then we come to that anomaly, the fourth and last thing that God requires of us in order for him to perform the three things that he promised he would do. Hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal the land. And that fourth and final thing that I'm referring to after we've humbled ourselves and we prayed and we sought the face of God is to turn from our wicked ways. God's talking right now to the church, to the redeemed, to holy people. The word, Hebrew word for wicked is rea. It's an adjective meaning bad or evil. I don't think the people of God are bad or evil, do you? I don't think they're bad or evil. The basic meaning of this word displays ten or more various shades of the meaning of evil according to its contextual usage, of course, in the word of God. Now, we may consider some apostolics carnal, but we would never consider them to be do you agree with me? I mean, uh, we might consider them unstable, unreliable, unfaithful, unwise, undependable, or a lot of other things, but we would not consider even with those qualities or lack thereof to be wicked. So please, hear the following. It was in Matthew chapter 16, immediately after Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter. If anybody's on a spiritual high, this guy is riding. He's riding the wave all the way in. And at that time, Jesus then begins to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Somehow they didn't hear that part about being raised again the third day. Matthew chapter 16 and 22 and 23 then Peter took him. He probably put his hands on his shoulders. He was very direct and made direct contact with his Lord. He began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Keys of the kingdom. A tremendous responsibility. But now... He turned, Jesus did, to Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of 
men. God didn't say that to Peter because Peter had committed adultery. He didn't say that to Peter because Peter had committed some sin of lewdness or immorality. He said it to Peter because Peter was standing against his will. If Jesus was an earthly king, what Peter said would have appeared noble and upstanding and gallant, but Jesus is the king of kings. And so Peter gained the ire and the rebuke of God when the Lord said, Satan, he didn't call him Peter, he said, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. My God, my God, my God. Can you imagine what Peter must have felt in that moment while the daggers of God's reality of who he was and what he was manifesting struck him in his heart. Musicians, please join me on the platform. Thank you for your faithfulness. In the 13th chapter of John, verse number 8, we find the disciples in an upper room. They are having the last meal, what we refer to as the last supper, um, with Christ before the next morning. He would be arrested, scourged crucified and buried. And it's in that supper, while they partook of the Passover, that um, Jesus took a towel and a basin and he washed the disciples' feet. That's where we get the example of washing one another's feet. He washed the disciples' feet. I'm talking about the Almighty God, robed in flesh, lowered himself, beneath his creation, and washed their feet. When Jesus got to Peter, verse number 8, Peter said, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Now I want to remind you by this time, uh, With his rebuke in Matthew 16, far behind him, that's way in the past. He's, he's uh, survived that rebuke. Now he's in this room where Jesus is washing Peter's feet. So by the time that Peter finds himself in the upper room where Jesus is washing feet with a pan of water, he has acquired quite an impressive resume. Hear me now. He has been through a few storms. He has, he has, uh, he has uh, accomplished a number of things. For example, he's the only disciple to ever walk on water, and he did it during a storm. Think about that. He had been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He was a moral man. He was a godly man, righteous by all of the standards and dictates of the Mosaic law. And we know from Acts chapter 10 that he had never violated the dietary laws of God. Peter was fully and totally invested 
in the calling of God. He was committed for the rest of his life to the service of Jesus Christ. He led missions through which people were healed and they were delivered and, and, and they were touched in miraculous and wonderful and powerful ways. I'm telling you, Peter is sitting right here in that room with a resume that is to be admired and perhaps even envied. Yet when he refused to let Jesus wash his feet, Jesus said to him, if I don't wash your feet, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. You will have no part with me. So now I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to the redeemed of God, people baptized in the name of Jesus and filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm talking about a church of people, a, a redeemed of God that show up this morning and you've got quite an impressive resume. I'm going to tell you, if you're not careful, that resume will be your problem. When you, when you hear the voice of God, you say, oh, but i got a resume. I've done this and I've done that and I've been living for God for this long and for that long. So here it is. Here's our resume. Again, I'm not naive about some people that, that do different things when they're away from God's people, but I'm not talking to them right now. I'm talking to you. We're people that do not use profanity. We do not tell dirty jokes and we do not hang around those that do. We do not watch inappropriate television programs or uh, movies. We do not drink alcoholic beverages. We do not take drugs. We have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We do not at any time, under any circumstances, watch pornography. It's a sin. It's wickedness. Now, that is wickedness. We dress godly, or at least we endeavor to. We dress modestly, according to the biblical standards of, of appearance and decorum. We faithfully and cheerfully give our tithes and our offerings to God. Thank you for that are, that are giving uh, digitally and online and on your phone and sending your tithes and offerings. And thank you for that. Just keep on doing it. We appreciate it. We endeavor with everything that is within us to live peaceably with all men in the sight of God. And by God's grace, we live soberly, righteously, and justly in this present world. When God speaks to you, don't you dare pull out your resume. When God wakes you up in the middle of the night and says, somebody needs you to pray. Roll yourself out of that bed. Don't reach in the nightstand and pull your resume out and say, hey, God, I've been there, done that. I've got this, I've done this, and I've done that. And then roll over and go back to sleep. So Peter wasn't the only one impressed with the resume. We can present our own resume to God. But listen to me, church. With this resume in hand, thank God for the grace and mercy of God and the power of deliverance. Thank God for the blood that washes our sins away and the spirit of God that, that transforms us uh, in our mind and our heart and allows us to live a life that's acceptable and pleasing to God. But don't you mistake this. If you don't hear the call of God and respond to go on high alert, your resume will not save you. 
60 seconds away from releasing the worship team. The church is poised for the greatest move of God that it has ever seen. I believe that. But now you hear me. The miraculous move of God does not exist in the status quo of yesterday. That move of God does not exist in the shallow waters of routine. When we stand in this room with God's power drenching us and saturating us with His presence and Holy Ghost power and we can lift our hands with tears streaming down our face almost feeling we're at the point of being raptured out of here we say, God, this is great, but where are the lost? This is incredible. This is, this is wonderful. But where are the lost people at? God, this is great, but where are the gifts of the Spirit? Where are the signs and wonders? Where are the miracles? We're not unthankful. We're not, we're not unappreciative, God. But, oh, God. Oh, God. We're not satisfied anymore. We're not content anymore. We're not going back to that anymore. We will never practice the well-worn-out protocols of Pentecost again. We need to hear from God. My God. So the Scripture places a grave responsibility on us in 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For the time is now come. Uh, uh, the time is now come that judgment must begin at the house of God and if it first begin at us what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God and if the righteous scarcely be saved where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear. The question was, where do we go from here? And I've just preached for the last 40 or 50 minutes telling you, this is where we go from here. Take a set of matches in your prayer room in the morning and light a fire in your altar that will burn until Jesus comes for his church. Kindle the fire. It's going to take more than 10 or 15 minutes. It's going to take more than the routine. But if you will light that fire, I'm telling you, God will begin to burn a zeal in you like you have not known for a long, long time. That is where we go from here. My God. Let's close this service with worship and with praise. Let's send our praise up unto the Lord our God. My God. Jesus.
Be blessed and strengthened with his might in Jesus' name. God bless you.